Ladies and gentlemen, to those among you who are easily frightened, we suggest you turn away now. To those of you who think they can take it, we say, welcome. discotheques in the last eight years or so, which I know you have, you probably heard that song. It's called Animals by Martin Garrix. It's from his 2014 EP Gold Skies, available on Apple Music. That is a great energetic dance song, and it's good because even though the world is burning and falling down around us, we monster kids have it good, especially in this month's episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast. You know, I don't think I've been to a discotheque since uh, the late uh, 80s, probably, you know, so I'm I'm a little rusty. I am Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. And I'm Richard Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.WordPress.com. Why don't I call the meeting to order? We'll start with our roll call of new members. We have four new members in our Facebook group page, The Classic Horrors Club Podcast. We would like to verbally welcome Joey Garcia, Dominique Lamses, Then Is Now Podcast, and Joel Bouchard. Thought Dominique was already a member. I trust she's been listening to us from day one. I'm just sure you have, Dominique, but we're glad that you joined our Facebook group page. And I hope you will share some of your very enjoyable witticisms with us on the group page because I certainly enjoy your posts just on your regular Facebook. I know you've already been participating on the page, which is fun. Welcome one and all. And I also would like to give a very special shout out to Kareen Owens, my mother. My mother, Richard, actually listens to this podcast with my brother, Jay. They go on these long California drives. They actually listen. I just want to say hello and thank you for listening. We certainly appreciate it. Hi, Jeff's mom. Hello. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool that she listens. Both of them listen. You know, my dad, you know, sadly lost him before I started doing the podcast with you. But when I was doing all my B-movie cast appearances, my dad listened. And I thought that was just always the coolest thing. He wouldn't listen to the rest, but he'd listen to my segment, my little voicemail segment, my contribution. And, and he always said, you should be doing your own show. Now I'm doing my own show, and I'd like to think my dad is still listening. Hi, Jeff's mom and brother, who I've never met, but hopefully someday will. Thanks for listening to the show. And call in with feedback. Let us know what you think of how these two wonderful hosts are doing with this show. I'm sure you're not biased at all. That's right. Join anyone else and leave some feedback. You can send us an email at classichorrors.club at gmail.com. You can participate in the Facebook group page that I mentioned earlier. You can record a message and email it 
to us. And you can also call our hotline, 616-649-2582. That is 616-649. Club, club, club. Club. You sound like a frog. I know. I stirred it up a little bit. Thanks for recognizing. We mentioned last month some movies we were going to be watching during the Halloween season. And Richard, you did watch one of those. And I said, well, maybe you can tell us how that was. I know you'd been looking forward to watching it for a long time and you finally did. Yes, I finally got a chance to watch La Llorona, the 1933 Mexican horror flick that has been uh, until recently very hard to find. Almost. Well, it really was almost impossible to find. And then if you did find it, it was really of poor quality. But Indicator, which is a UK label, but they do some of their stuff in region-free releases, put out a uh, wonderful Blu-ray edition of it. Uh, I also find it's interesting now that this movie is now somehow available through Sinister Cinema. I wonder where they got their print. Kind of thought that was interesting. Anyway, La Llorona on on Indicator Blu-ray, absolutely worth getting. Nice package. You get a nice little booklet of information about the movie. A few cool extras were thrown in with it. The present, the, the film is going to look as good as it's ever going to look because the print is a 16 millimeter print. You can only make those look so good, but it really does look infinitely better than anything you may find on the internet. This is really the first sound Mexican horror flick. It predates The Phantom of the Convent which often gets credited as being the first Mexican horror flick because that came out in, I think, 34. That movie and, and Two Monks, which came out about the same time, gets a lot of press. This one really, though, predates it. And when I say Mexican horror, I'm talking about Mexican horror films actually made in Mexico. Yes, there's the Universal Horror Dracula 1931, which is in Spanish. That was not made in Mexico. That was an American production with a Spanish cast. There's a lot of cool things to love about La Llorona. The sets that they they used in part of the film were amazing. And then there's like another flashback sequence where they kind of went on the cheap. It was a really fun flick. It goes with the legend of La Llorona, which if, you know, it's the crying woman. And there's like a gazillion variations of it, depending on the movie and, the, and where they want to take it. So this is just a variation on that. Some of the cool extras on there talk about how the how it was saved and showing it to there's a there's a young girl in the movie that actually is still alive and they showed the movie to her. It was interesting to see those reactions and and anyway, I really enjoyed it. If you love Mexican horror flicks, if you liked Phantom of the Convent, which they also put out, Two Monks, I don't know. You're going to have to go other sources to find that. I don't think that's been given an official release. It's not that expensive. It's a nice package. It's a fun film. And it's horror film history. It's always cool when something that's been lost is unearthed again and made available. And recommend you you check that out if you're interested in that kind of thing. You know, maybe not the best film ever, but certainly was entertaining. Had a lot of old dark house elements to it, really. It almost felt more like an old dark house film for a big chunk of it with some flashback sequences and then some ghosts and crying women and great presentation. Two thumbs up. Fantastic. Thank you for that mini review. 
kind of remind everyone what we did in October for Halloween and kind of wrap that up and, and kind of tie a pretty little bow around it before we put it to bed for another year. Rich, you want to uh, start out and yeah, talk about our uh, countdown to Halloween? Well, the countdown to Halloween, what we did this year was really your idea. The name game was an idea that you came up with. And I'm so glad you did because it was a lot of fun for us to kind of split the month, do half the work and for twice the fun, really, because it was a lot of fun going back and forth. As I told Jeff before we started recording, I really would love to do something similar, maybe not next Halloween, but at some point in the future, do some type of challenge where we do it over the course of a month, maybe not as in-depth and with as many movies, because that's a challenge in itself. But uh, I, I think maybe we'll do something in the future, some some type of challenge. Maybe he can throw me somebody a, a little easier than Melissa Sue Anderson. But I will say, of all the films, while Happy Birthday to me was not my favorite, it was also not my least favorite, I'm glad that I watched that movie, finally, after all these years. So thank you for giving me Melissa Sue Anderson. You bet. You say that was difficult, but really it was easy. You didn't have a lot of choices. And for me, it's harder when you've got more to choose from. And it was, I found it on Crackle, of all weird things. I don't, I've never watched anything on Crackle before. I thought it'd be fun to look back and see what was our favorite new movie that we watched. Because you and I both watched new movies. I think you watched a few more new ones than I did. What was our favorite revisit? The one that we just had fun watching. And what was the worst movie we watched, whether new or revisit? For me, my favorite new movie was The Uncanny from 1977. I'd never seen that before. Anthology with Peter Cushing and Ray Milland and Donald Pleasance, which that was the name you gave me. That's why I pulled it up. I had had the Blu-ray from Severin, I think, for a while sitting on the shelf. And I thought, you know, perfect choice. I, it, I knew right away what I was going to do when I saw Donald Pleasant's name pop up. A lot of fun. That was my favorite new film. Favorite revisit, hands down, The Omega Man, 1971, Charlton Heston. I, you know, that movie just, I, I enjoy the hell out of that. And I have no shame in saying that. I know some people much rather prefer Vincent Price's version of that story, Last Man on Earth. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone prefer Will Smith. But the Omega Man's just a lot of fun. Cheesy, and uh, I love that particular era for Charlton Heston. Worst, and this is the, the one where I really cheated on because, and I, and I am open about it entirely. A couple of the films I had seen, like in a month or so, like I had seen Return of the Living Dead, like just in the last 30 days. So that I didn't think that was really cheating. Frankenstein's Daughter, 1958. I saw that earlier in the year. And when I think it was what H.H. Berry was the name you'd given me and not a lot of options. And I saw, I was like, you know what? I have thoughts about Frankenstein's daughter. And I and I know some people love it for its quirkiness, but man, yeah, no thanks. That was a tough one. And it's out on glorious Blu-ray from the film detective and great if you want to add that to your collection. That's a film that... I don't think I could sit through again. So that was my worst. So what was your favorite new film revisit and, and worst film? My favorite new film, you had given me the name Nan Gray, a lovely actress. She was in the House of the Seven Gables with Vincent Price. Not strictly horror, but very gothic mystery, some chilling moments. Early performance of Vincent Price, absolutely incredible. He really, really got to shine 
in a emotional roller coaster of a role. That was my favorite. I wanted to see it forever. And things like this kind of forced me to get into some of those movies I haven't seen and was very glad I did. I got to say, I agree. That's a great movie. I love that. Great early Vincent Price. My least favorite, you gave me the name of Basil Rathbone. And you would think I could find a good movie. And he's been in a lot of movies, and I could have. But (laughs) I went with Hillbillies in a Haunted House. (laughs) It is one I had bought on DVD used at Vintage Stock in Kansas City. And I just had never watched it. So I did. And I, you know, this is least favorite. That doesn't mean it was horrible. The, you know, I enjoyed it to a certain extent. Not an extent, <laughs> I guess, good enough. But anyway, I, you know, I want to be kind. But that it, it was my least favorite of the movies I watched. Now, my favorite revisit is something that we talked about. Because the other thing we did during Halloween was on October 31st, we dropped a video where each of us gave our five recommended movies, go-to movies, movies we either watch every year for Halloween or intend to watch in the future. I talked about it in detail then, but I will repeat it now. My favorite revisit, you gave me Sam Raimi, and it was Evil Dead. It's better and better each time I see it, and this year it was elevated to annual status. It's It's just terrific for what it does on a cheap budget and the creative filmmaking is just amazing. I actually was inspired and I wanted to watch Evil Dead again and I don't have it anymore. I had Evil Dead 1 and 2 and it's one of the movies I purged. I remember liking Evil Dead and then Evil Dead 2. I was kind of like, well, this is just kind of more of the same but polished, but I didn't I kind of like you. I prefer Evil Dead over Evil Dead 2 feel like I may need to repurchase Evil Dead at some point in the future because I really want to revisit it. Or if I can find it out there in the streaming world, who knows wherever that's at. I kind of want to revisit it based on your reviews. I guess the whole point of why we do this is like hopefully introduce new films or or remind people of old films or maybe even encourage them to stay away from something. If they've been on the fence about Hillbillies in a Haunted House, your review might have like pushed them one way and I have no problem pushing people away from Frankenstein's daughters. That's why you do it? I do it for the money. Money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me where this money's at. I, I didn't know we were getting this. Yeah, if you missed our video, it's still available. It's on our YouTube channel. And YouTube now has a thing. We have a handle now, Richard, on YouTube, what makes it easier for people to find our channel. And it is at Classic Horrors TV. I believe there's a, a YouTube.com in front of that, but then you just type at Classic Horse TV and you go right to our channel. You don't have to click a link or enter the weird code that used to be the way that you found our channel. We got feedback about the video. Please do that. <laughs> All right. So Steve Sullivan watched our video and he said, choosing five is impossible, but every year some combination of Universal and Hammer Monster films are sure to be on my list. Dracula remains my hammer fave. I think I've watched four of them this week, only one today. The Wolfman is my pre-50s universal fave. And though I haven't watched any today, I did watch both House of movies before doing MKR with Derek recently. My friend David Annandale and I recently became obsessed with grabbing Poverty Row Blu-rays before they went completely out of print. So I've watched some Bella and Boris films there and today watched The Monster Maker with J. Carol Nash 
and then King of the Zombies with Mantan Moreland. So many monsters and so little time. Thank you, Steve, for taking, well, for watching the video and then taking time to comment. I wonder, I'm going to ask him if that phrase is copyrighted. I really like that. So many monsters and so little time. <laughs> we all have that same problem. Is it a problem? I don't think it is. Nah. It's a fun problem to have with all the other problems in the world. If our problems are not having enough time to, to watch monster movies, all the monster movies we went, I'll take that problem any day. Because uh, that means you've always got something on the horizon that you're waiting to watch. And sometimes it may take you years to get. Has anyone ever truly gotten through their stack of to watch movies? I don't know. I don't think so. That's a, that's a phrase that if it's not coined, it should be. Yes. I claim it now if no one else has it. Well, Rich, I'm going to say that this is purposeful, although it probably was a mistake. We didn't tell people what movies we're doing this month. What are we doing this month? Uh, well, this is a good time because I, before we get into those movies, I'd like to kind of give a little history of the subgenre, kind of some thoughts on it. I want to first say that I am using as a resource this month uh, this book called Massacred by Mother Nature, Exploring the Natural Horror Film. It is by a gentleman named Lee Gambon. And so I've used, looked at that a little bit. His name will come back later. And then the most brilliant, entertaining, interesting resource on one of our movies comes from this book, Unsung Horrors. It is a wonderful treatise, I believe you could call it, on frogs. And the author is <laughs> Jeff Owens. <laughs> How about that? And actually, I did a lot of research at the time I wrote that. So I'm using a lot of notes again. Uh, and it talks not just about frogs, but a little bit about the history of the, the genre. Any, so, anytime we can take a shortcut and use some old notes. <laughs> I, I have no shame in admitting I've done that a time or two as well. Frogs might be one of the movies we're doing this month. Maybe, right? maybe. So the, the genre we're talking about in general, I would call the umbrella genre is natural horror. Yeah. So natural horror is anything, not necessarily just from nature, but just that like naturally exists. So it is a lot of animals, but it could be plants as well. And this umbrella genre includes the giant bug movies. So if you look at it from that perspective, you know, natural horror goes way back. We've sort of yeah. always had them. But then there are subgenres. And the particular subgenre that we're dealing with today is not as plentiful in movies. Uh, it is what we might call the eco-horror. It is animals and usually the reason for them being in some type of horrific situation is something in the environment something that has gone wrong, something that we have done. And the two movies we're focusing on that fall into that are Frogs from 1972 and Day of the Animals from 1977. Now, Frogs actually is probably the first in this sub-genre. Uh, it came out in 72. Willard was a year before in 71, but that was a single animal. That was rats and we don't really know there was no reason it, or part of the movie was not why they were doing what they were doing they were just gathering in in mass and, and doing it so that you know is really different than frogs now if you go back further there here and there were some movies that would sort of be similar 
Killer Shrews actually in 1959 was one of the first with a, a particular kind of animal. Uh, we had the birds in 1963, and I'm going to be making a lot of comparison to the birds when we talk about frogs. But again, one particular species of animal. Deadly bees in 1966, the same thing. So when we get to frogs, I believe really it's the first time that we have all kinds of different animals. And it is from you know a particular environment where something has gone wrong, causing them to get very, very angry. Now, the thing that's significant about this is that this type of movie had a resurgence in the 70s. Most of them, again, are going to be targeted to a specific type of animal. In 1973, we had pigs. In 74, we had another bee movie, Killer Bees. We had Phase 4, which was ants. Then in 75, we had a new movie that kind of creates an offshoot, Jaws. So after that, we had movies that were not only natural horror, eco-horror, but then, and I don't know what the name of it would be, but, you know, a specific uh, animal that you could anthropomorphize and say he's out to kill or out for revenge or, or something like that. So that kicked off its own little subgenre, which then overlaps and really it's a frustrating exercise to really try to put everything in its neat little pocket. But these all kind of come incestuous in a way. And I just want to rattle off some of these movies that came out in the 70s because there were a number of them. In 76, we had Savage Bees. We had Grizzly. So Grizzly is the cross of, you know, eco-horror and the Jaws type movie. We had Dogs. We had Rattlers. We had Squirm. We had Food of the Gods. A year later in 77, besides Day of the Animals which again has a variety of animals, so it makes a very good pairing with frogs. We had Kingdom of the Spiders, Empire of the Ants, Ants, the Pack, Orca, Tentacles. In 78, we had Piranha, the Swarm, the Bees, Long Weekend. Now, I had not heard of Long Weekend, but I really want to watch it very soon after we record this, and I'm just going to read the description. Maybe people know about it. Do you know about it, Richard? The title sounds familiar. But yeah, I'm not sure if it's Australian, but uh, it is when a suburban couple go camping for the weekend at a remote beach, they discover that nature isn't in an accommodating mood. <laughs> so that sounds like it could, if we were doing three movies again, that sounds like a third one that we could have done. And then even in 1979, we had Nightwing, which was about bats, and then Prophecy, which was not... Uh, it was a sort of a manufactured monster based from qualities of other creatures. 70s, big time for this genre, this subgenre. And again, we have picked two of the variety that number one has different types of animals and number two has that ecological little twist. That is my quote unquote history of this genre. Richard, would you like to add anything? No, I think that you said it perfectly. That really sets up, you know, there's, as with anything in horror, there's the umbrella and then there's all the little umbrellas underneath that and the subgenres. We had a nice set of films to potentially choose from when we went with our, you know, nature run amok theme here. I think we're picking two of the, two of the, I think, films at the top. You know, certainly Frogs is one that it comes to, to mind with a lot of people. It's got that iconic image of a frog and a hand sticking out. Spoiler alert and shocker. That's not in the film. Oh, uh, well, technically or, it is. Technically it I is. I guess that's, that's true. That's true. It could be in the film. 
I think, yeah, it's going to be fun to dive into these. Yeah. And the, the other thing about this history that I didn't mention is that I love this genre and this subgenre. Uh, you know, 70s, my sweet spot. And the fact that so many of these came out then, I'm really going to enjoy talking about these movies. I will too. And I think we need to dive in. Yep. So let's uh, take a quick break, listen to the trailer for Frogs, and then come back and talk about it. Suppose nature gave a war and everybody came. The snake, the birds, the lizards and frogs. And suppose that the polluters, the species on Earth called man, were the enemy in that war. I still believe man is master of the world. And then suppose that the human race lost. Sam Elliott, Joan Van Ark, Adam Rourke, Judy Pace. First of all, we're going to have to try to find out our Stuart and Michael. Be very honest with you. I don't think we will. Not alive, anyway. You talking big because you're the only one making any sense around here. But whether we find him or not, we've got to get off this damn island. All of us, now! And I am asking to get the hell out of here with someone or by myself. surrounding the island mansion of the wealthy Crockett family, wildlife photographer Pickett Smith learns that nature is fighting back against ecological abuse. Gathered for their annual 4th of July and the Patriarch's birthday, members of the family are attacked one by one by snakes, spiders, lizards, leeches, alligators, birds, turtles, frogs, and each other. Frogs was written by Robert Hutchison and Robert Blees, directed by George McCowan. It stars Ray Milland, Sam Elliott, Joan Van Ark, Adam Rourke, and others. Running time is 91 minutes. It was produced by American International Pictures and Thomas Slash Edwards Productions, released in the United States on March 10th, 1972, distributed by AIP. Richard, what did you think of Frogs? Last time I think I said that Frogs was going to be a first-time viewing. Actually, this is my second time seeing this movie, but I really feel it's like the first. I have memories of some of the scenes, but then other scenes are just not coming to mind at all. So I'm thinking that when I first saw it, I must have been multitasking, must have had something else going on. And I watched the Svengoolie version 
That was the easiest way for me to see frogs since I didn't have it in my collection. I really enjoyed this one. This was fun. There was a few times where like, man, those frogs croaking would drive me nuts after a while if I was living there. We'll see in the next movie as well. You've got a group of people and most of them are to one degree or another a pain in the ass who kind of get what's coming to them in the end. The survivors at the end are the, are the ones, so the only ones that had common sense for the most part. I tallied all the various deaths. Oh, really? I did too. You could almost go down the list and, and most of them are like, yep, deserved it, deserved it, deserved it. A couple of them didn't. You've got the main character of Jason Crockett played by Ray Milan. He really was kind of the crotchety old man who had, he wanted his party. I kept thinking of the guy in Creep Show. I want my Father's Day cake. I know that he's older and he's in a wheelchair and that's kind of why he's trying to give this excuse as to why he's so hell-bent on getting the family together. And it's clear that he doesn't give a damn about nature. And before the movie starts, he has sent out an exterminator to eradicate the problem. And it's obviously much bigger than anyone understands until the end of the film. The only one who probably he's the most pleasant to is Pickett Smith. And even then, he's not overly friendly with Pickett Smith. He knows that his family is kind of how they are. He doesn't have patience for for them. They're tired of, of his crotchiness. There's just a it's a very unhappy family that Pickett Smith, played by Sam Elliott, has kind of stumbled into. And he really is, for the most part, the only one that's really got common sense, understands there's something bigger happening. He's not really ready to to take shit from anybody. And he sees through the whole situation pretty quickly. Even at the beginning of the film, our first scenes of him, he's photographing nature in the swamp. And then along comes a boat with two members of the Crockett family, Karen Crockett. And who was the other guy? Was it Clint? Yes. Yes. Comes along in a speedboat. First scene, we know exactly what we're to think of Clint. He's obviously drinking. He's a drunk. And he causes the the canoe that Pickett's in to tip over. Thus, all of his photography equipment, his camera, all of it's ruined. And Pickett, when Clint is reaching a hand to kind of pull him into the boat and save him, doesn't waste any time yanking him and pulling him into the water. He knows what these people are right from the get-go. Karen is the only one played by Joan Van Ark who really isn't a bad person. She played Val Ewing on Dallas and Not Slanting, the thing she's probably most famous for. And I'm beginning to wonder, is like I, I've seen Joan Van Ark in quite a few things. And I think almost every time I see her, she kind of is playing the same little whiny character. Val was kind of a whiny character on Not Slanting to an extent. It seemed like stuff was always happening to her and she was just always kind of the victim and always kind of upset. And that's kind of how she plays Karen here is that she's clearly not happy with some of the choices that her grandfather's making. She's not happy with some of the choices the other family members are making. It really isn't until the end of the movie that she decides to kind of stand up and and make a stand. She's just kind of going with the flow. I think that Pickett sees that very early on. I think she's someone he can talk to. The rest are just people 
they've all got their various issues or they're putting on a persona of something that they aren't like the character of Bella Carrington played by Judy Pace. She's kind of playing the role because there's a moment where she's talking to Maybell, the housekeeper, where she lets that persona down and she gets to kind of be herself. It's an interesting family and Pickett is clearly the hero of the piece. He's the one that understands nature and he's the one that begins to perceive very early on that things are are not normal. It's not just an extra gathering of frogs. There's things starting to happen with all of nature and how widespread that is. We understand it more when we get to the final act. I really enjoyed it. You feel sorry for nature at first. And then, and that's kind of the way with some of these films. At first, you kind of feel sorry for nature. But nature's out to kill me. Then it becomes kind of an us versus them mentality. Why are they attacking us? Well, it's usually because of something we've done as humans to upset that ecological balance. And there's a lot more to this film than some of the cheesy advertising would kind of have you believe kind of grim when you think about it. And some of the deaths are, are, although not overly graphic, they're pretty horrific. What are your thoughts about frogs? Obviously, you've written about it. You've got a thing or two to say. What what do you think? Yeah, I love this movie. It's in probably my top 20 of favorite horror movies. You mentioned the family and how despicable they are. That is another characteristic of this genre and subgenre is often that you do identify with the animals and you side with them Definitely here, that's the case. I guess I have some nostalgic connection to this. I do remember watching it in theaters at the Chief Theater, Nina's same place I saw House of Dark Shadows. Interestingly, I was able to sit through this one, didn't have to leave. It is more of a, oh, not innocent, but less outright terrifying movie than House of Dark Shadows is. I've loved it since then. I've seen it many, many times. The thing about frogs is... You look at some of those other movies, Rattlers and The Birds, they just evoke terror at that. You think of frogs, what's a frog going to do to you? But it is that it's not just frogs, it is the other parts of nature. I just wrote for, by TV Terror Guide, the movie that came up was Ants, or it happened at Lakewood Manor. And how scary are little ants? The thing is, anything in a huge quantity can be scary. It can create a situation of suspense where people are trying to survive. So if you can just get past what the creature is, a frog is just as scary or could be just as terrifying. You mentioned the sound driving you crazy. That's something that comes up several times. To me, the frogs don't have to do anything other than croak. That would drive me crazy. And the characters say they can't sleep. The sound is driving them crazy. So that maybe that's the frog's weapon. It reminded me uh, a few years ago here in Kansas City, we had one of those 17-year locust things. Oh, my gosh. Where they had been in the ground for a long time. You know, I think it was like 15, 16, 17 years. It was two weeks, maybe max, not even that. But they were everywhere. And it was annoying. And the house that we live in, when that happened... And you go back, well, 15, 16, 17 years, this was farmland. So when those locusts were here, this was all farmland. They they went in the ground, went into their little hibernation, you know, laid an egg or whatever. The egg hatches now 15 years later, whatever the cycle is of this. And now there's a big housing community here. So 
it wasn't just the nighttime cicada thing. It wasn't the locusts at cicadas, but the, the cicada thing at night, it was like during the day and they were flying everywhere. And I remember sitting at my desk working and then just looking out the window and you could see it in the daylight. They were just everywhere and the noise. And it was like a solid week of just, you didn't get a break from it. That simple noise of an animal can drive you nuts and, and would put you on edge, which is what the characters are. They're on edge. They're already a family with all sorts of issues. You add in the, the fact that they're not getting sleep, the fact that it's hot. Well, they're close to the swamp. It's hot. You just get a feeling of like it's it's sweaty and sticky and you're not getting as good sleep at night. And everyone's just irritable. And some people are just like, I'm just going to drink myself into oblivion because this is horrible. And some of them just, they're tired of grandpa anyway, but now they're just really tired of him. Nobody's happy. <laughs> they're all on edge. And you add in the croaking of the frogs. Yeah, it, it drives me nuts. I do not miss those locusts. I literally, I could not hear myself think. My other point about the deaths and, you know, how much damage could a frog do or whatever is, and especially in Day of the Animals, it's not so much that the like the creature does something that kills somebody. It could be they do something to themselves and then the animals kind of swarm them or uh, attack them. So as I made my list of deaths, as you did, I put snakes and I put who died. And then oftentimes I'll put the person's name and then the animal after that, because they don't they aren't they're always aggressive. There's no doubt about that. But they aren't always the murderers. No, sometimes they just have to be in the wrong spot at the wrong time. You want to talk about the death? First, I want to make my birds connection. Like, yeah, you think frogs, birds, okay, they're similar. But structurally, the story, there are similarities. They're sort of begin and end the same. I mean, in the birds, we had the main character, Tippi Hedren, that she takes a long drive and she inserts herself into the lives of another family. Well, that's what happens at the beginning of this is Sam Elliott taking his pictures and he inserts himself into the family. Well, they invite him. The bookend on the other side is in the birds. Of course, we have that just birds everywhere and they're just quietly walking through. The suspense is just palpable of are the birds going to swarm? Are they going to get through? In this, a little different, but still you have the frogs are all gathering, filling up the room and there's a character in there. There is not just the obvious Similarity, but I do think a structural similarity. So go ahead. Let's talk about the deaths. You want to start out? Technically, the first death, although we really don't see it on camera, I think is Grover, the exterminator. Pickett Smith finds him laying kind of face down in, in the swamp, and he's been killed by snakes. You just assume that oh, Grover, I guess, was kind of the antagonist in a way because he's the exterminator, right? So he's going in and is finding to exterminate the creatures, the snakes in particular, I guess you could say they were protecting themselves. Maybe that's a way to think of it, or maybe it was he was just there and they were there. We assume that'd be death number one. I wanted to mention at this point that Tom Berman did the makeup. This was, if not his first job, one of his first, and the name may be familiar. He goes on and does much more well-known movies. But I think the makeup effect when they flip over Grover is the best in the film. And I think subsequent Makeups on the other desks kind of go downhill from there. I thought that it was just terrific. I'd agree. Very convincing. Death number two, Michael shoots himself. Got some stock footage of him shooting some 
I don't know, perhaps pheasant or whatever. I, I couldn't see what they were, but he's shooting some birds and he's all excited. And then he somehow he trips and shoots himself in the leg. Then he kind of lands in like this moss and there's tarantulas who have apparently taken up residence in this weird moss. So the moss starts to fall down on him. It's like the tarantulas are throwing this moss and it was almost like it was paralyzing him in a way. Then, of course, the tarantulas come down and and we have kind of a kingdom of the spiders moment here where not looking good for Michael and the tarantulas get the best of him. I didn't think as much about it as you did. It is very odd that the moss keeps growing on top of him. But the way I thought about it is the spiders were above him, maybe in the tree branches. And you do see them shooting their web. It's a combination of that landing on him. And I don't know, you shoot yourself in the shin. It's probably not too easy to get up and run away. So I didn't think about it being paralyzed, but you're right. It definitely gives that effect. And it's like, where is that moss coming from? And I don't know if they're shaking it from the tree branches unintentionally or what, but yeah, that's a little odd, but nevertheless, and then you miss the icing on the cake. After he's all cocooned and dead, a scorpion crawls across him. Why is a scorpion there? It shouldn't be, but you know, we'll go with it. Sure. Why not? Death number three was Ken. Ken goes into the hothouse and is killed by a poison gas that's apparently spilled by the geckos. Did they do it accidentally or did they know that there was poison gas there? Nonetheless, it gets knocked over. And so what do you do when you're in a hothouse and you see gas rising up from the ground? You walk right into the gas and put your head in it and then you start to suffocate. Doesn't end well for Ken, who essentially is asphyxiated by the poison gas, and that's that's the end of Ken. Ken wasn't necessarily a bad character entirely. Michael was probably a nicer character. We, we didn't really see anything bad from Michael up to that point. Ken was kind of on the fence a little bit. He was a little arrogant, uh, a little entitled. Not a great person, but not necessarily an all-out bad guy. Well, here's the thing about Ken. He was, no pun intended, the probably the black sheep of the family because his girlfriend was an African-American. Yeah. It's there, but you, it's not really obvious. You know Ray Milland is racist. I mean, he's got his two servants, the cook and the butler or whatever, that are black. There is one comment. They use the word white, and it's not in reference to race, but It just, I made that association that maybe it was sort of an underhanded, that doesn't make Kenneth a bad guy, but you could sort of group him in that because to that family, even though he wasn't outwardly a bad person, he could be considered one of the bad guys because he was doing something probably against what the family stood for. That's true. That's true. So his girlfriend being Bella Carrington, it's revealed when she's talking to Maybell, the maid, that her name is actually Maybell as well. She's clearly come from the same background as Maybell. She's elevated herself and she's created this persona, so to speak, of Bella Carrington, where she's kind of going against the system a little bit, what the system was in 1972. As Jason would have said at the time, she's kind of going outside of her station. And that's where Ken, because he was clearly part of that, would have been on Jason's bad side. You can't help, though, when you see Ray Milan, you think of the thing with two heads. He's kind of almost the same character here. This points out that what we just talked about, 
you could laugh at this comment, but I really do think this script is above average, above other movies of this kind because of these sort of subtle messages it delivers. We don't really know why Ray Milland is wealthy and we know he is. There's a one little conversation where his daughter who runs one of his plants is giving him a report of what's happening. That's really the only indication we get to imply how they got wealthy. And so, you know, number one, you're not wasting time with backstory, but we're putting it in there where we need just so that we have enough to know what we need to know. I really appreciate that and do think it's cut above the others. I would agree. I would agree. Absolutely. Death number four. This was Iris. She was into butterflies and she has her net and she's going off in search of a butterfly. It almost reminds me of, oh, the one guy in the episode of Gilligan's Island who's looking for butterflies and going off. She's just kind of in her own little world. She's fascinated by them and she's like in search of this butterfly. Now, originally... She was going to encounter a giant butterfly. Thank God they didn't do that. They filmed the footage because her death is what is seen in the trailer. If you watch the trailer, she is drowning in quicksand. And that's not how she dies uh, in the movie. That's actually from the scene originally. They filmed it and then it was viewed that this is way too silly. Audiences aren't going to go for a giant butterfly. I've never seen a picture of what the giant butterfly looked like. So I don't know. I'm sure that footage may be out there somewhere. It may be gone by now, but thank God they didn't go with that. That would have been, I think, crossing the line of like, really? Even if a butterfly is big, I think in Mothra still friendly to everybody, you know? I mean, okay. She ends up, getting killed in kind of a joint attack by some leeches and some snakes. She gets kind of tossed and turned around and she's just running and screaming and goes into the swamp and comes up and she's got leeches on her. And trust me, I'd be squeamish as well. I I think of stand by me, you know, I'd be checking my private parts right away. I was like, please, dear God, no, no leeches. And then there's snakes an assortment of snakes, cannons to the left of me, cannons to the right of me. I mean, there's snakes to the front, snakes in the back. There's snakes over here. Iris was not really a bad person. She was kind of just there. She was kind of this flaky, I wouldn't call her entitled. We didn't really get to know much about her character. Well, she was the one that was running the plant, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Even though we didn't see it. She's part of the process. She's just not overtly bad. This is my favorite scene. I remember this scaring me the most when I originally saw it. First of all, I didn't know about the giant butterfly, but when she's inside looking at her butterfly and she says, this is the biggest butterfly I've seen, you're kind of trained so far to know, okay, she's going to die by butterfly. Well, how is that going to happen? So I'm glad that it didn't and they didn't do that. But here's the thing. She's out and... She becomes disoriented. She's stumbling around in the woods and she's getting cuts and scrapes from running into branches and everything. And she walks into a a branch that's sort of in a U shape hanging down and like catches her by the neck. I love that because you think, oh, that's how she's going to go. She's going to be caught there and they're going to attack her or something. Well, it doesn't happen. And in a way, that's a type of a false jump scare. And the thing is, she realizes it too, because if you look at her, She like kind of steps back and she sort of subtly laughs at herself like we would in a jump scare. You know, we're scared for an instant 
I love that scene. Plus, it's just creepy. It goes on longer. It's very suspenseful the way the camera work is done. Yeah, and then put leeches on it. And that's the thing about frogs is that there's something, anything you're afraid of is probably in this movie. We know people are afraid of snakes. They're afraid of spiders, afraid of leeches. There's something in here to make you just go, Ugh. I'm not afraid of leeches, but I also wouldn't go swimming in the swamp because I know I'm likely to come out with leeches. And once I saw them on me, I probably would, would be screaming like a 10-year-old girl. Death number five, we have Stuart. He gets killed by alligators in the mud. Stuart, we don't know much about his character. When we see of him, he's kind of an ass. He's, he's kind of getting on to his son. You need to stand up. You need to be a man. Stuart, he's the first person when they meet Ray Milland, he tells him, hey, go check on something. I thought he worked for Ray Milland. I didn't even know he was a family member. And then like halfway in or later, you finally figure out. Another subtle thing, you know, you know, the relationships aren't clearly defined. And that's part of the fun is learning how they relate. Yeah. And his death, there was a moment where he's kind of like almost kind of tossing and turning. You know, I kind of like, oh, he's pulling a Tarzan. He's going to twist and turn with. And did you notice he ends up with like a bloody shoulder as if he's been bitten? But that is delivered via him slapping his own hand on his shoulder. And when he removes the hand, there's the blood. That's my least favorite scene, but it's fun. It's probably the least effective death. But it happened, you're kind of like, okay, yeah, let's go on to the next one. The next three deaths that we have are implied. We assume that they're dead, but we don't really see them die. And that would be Charles, Maybell, and Bella. They all agree they're going to get off the island, and they're going to get on the boat with Clint. He's going to take them across. This is at the point where They've determined that there's nobody else on the lake today. Where is everybody else? It's the 4th of July. What's going on? They get to the other side of the lake. Yeah, there's nobody there. And Clint goes looking for whoever's supposed to be on the other side. Meanwhile, Charles, Maybell, and Bella, they have their suitcases and they go walking off. And then this is where I guess it's kind of implied the birds played a part maybe in their death. They see a campfire that is still going. There's still food cooking. Last we see of them, they're kind of walking off towards a shed. And then you see some birds fly down. And then that's kind of it. And we don't really see what happened to them. The only other thing we see later on is their suitcases have been kind of opened and some clothes are strewn. There's no bodies. There's no sign of them. Technically, they could still be alive. But their deaths are left kind of ambiguous if they're, in fact, dead. I'd say the birds probably got them. I think so. Clint is the official death number six. Nine, if you add Charles Maybell and Bella officially, kind of depends how you're adding all this up. But Clint's the next one. He gets killed by a cottonmouth snake. The boat has ended up going out, and he has to jump in the lake to swim back to the boat, which you know that's not going to end well because then you see some snakes slithering along and that's the end of him. He gets his. Honestly, out of all the people, you know, Clint is probably the one that are like, yeah, he deserved it because he was not a nice guy. He was the drunk. Maybe there's a reason why he was and maybe having Jason as a grandfather. I'm assuming his father, I get a grandfather or father. I don't know. Maybe that drove him to drink. Not the nicest of guys. And his death 
you see it coming, it happens, and you're like, yeah, he probably deserved it. I wondered what that snake was. I don't know what a cottonmouth snake is, and I don't know what a water moccasin is, and it could be a regional thing, but I wondered if that was a water moccasin, because that snake could just swim on top of the water. I had read that it was a cottonmouth. Oh, okay. It could be a regional thing, too, that we call them different things. If you see a snake in the water, I know not every snake is poisonous, and I could be wrong, but I think more times than not, if you see a snake in the water, it's probably something you want to avoid. Well, yeah. Land, air, sea, whatever, avoid snakes. Especially if they're on an effing plane. (laughs) Death number seven or death number ten, depending on how you're keeping track again, would be Jenny, who was kind of sheepish, I guess, kind of mousy. She was Clint's wife, frustrated with Clint's drinking, but she wasn't really standing up to him like she should have. And ultimately... I think she witnesses Clint's death. She goes running off. She gets killed by an alligator snapping turtle. <laughs> okay. I guess that can happen. That death to me was kind of an odd one. Didn't work as well. You could use your imagination a little bit too, because she stepped down into the water. Didn't her feet get stuck in the mud? So she couldn't leave. I noticed this for the first time ever when I've watched this after she's dead. I saw something on her. Were there crabs crawling on her? Oh, I don't know. I didn't catch that. This is a very interesting ecological pocket where there's all kinds, you know, scorpions to alligators to turtles to... She also had to witness her husband flirting with Maybell Or not Maybell. Bella. Said, yeah, it's kind of implied not the first time that he's probably done that. She, to me, was the most sort of annoying character. Poor thing was very unhappy, but the way she expressed that was... A little, she's probably the most over the top character, maybe, except for Ray Milland. And my impression of her character was tainted a little bit because I, I know the actress or I recognize the actress. Played by actress Lynn Borden. She played the character of Barbara Baxter in the last season of Hazel. If anyone out there has ever watched mm-hmm. Hazel, Hazel the maid, and you've got the Baxter family, there's the husband and wife, and then they got the boy. The show got canceled by one network it moved to another which happened back in the 60s and still happens today sometimes shows get canceled and gets picked up by somebody else when it got picked up by the other network they decided that they wanted a younger family mr and mrs baxter they sent them off to work in the oil fields over in the desert and they left hazel and their son with the never before mentioned younger brother and his wife who was played by Lynn Borden. Lynn Borden's character immediately clashes with Hazel, the maid. I always felt her character was annoying to see her here. It's like, maybe that's kind of a persona that sometimes actresses or actors have a persona that they portray. And I will say the only other two big things of note that she did, she did Walking Tall and she did Black Mama, White Mama. Take that for what it's worth. At this point, we should say that Pickett, Karen, and two kids who really haven't played much of a part in the movie, who are Jenny and Clint's children, they end up getting in a canoe and making it to the other side. Not without some struggles. It's not an easy trip. They get stuck, and then there's some snakes, and you think, well, somebody's going to die. Nope, they make it to the other side. Then meanwhile, you've got Jason left alone and that's why he wants it he wants to be left alone he's going to go take a nap upstairs 
then this is where the frogs come into play. The invasion of the frogs, they're going to get their revenge on Jason. Now, I will say, if I had one problem with the movie, it was the ending. I don't feel like Jason's death had the impact that it should have had. And I think there's a reason why when I do the research, Ray Milland kind of got ticked off. He got tired of being in the, in the hot weather. He reached the end of production. His toupee kept sliding off, apparently. <laughs> Not a happy guy. He left the production before it was officially done. They hadn't filmed his death scene entirely. And so they had to use a, a body double for some of the scenes. His death was supposed to be a bit more dramatic. But because Ray Milan bailed and that was it, they weren't getting him back. That's why some of the shots were kind of like being kind of stylistic. But actually, no, it's the necessity. It, to me, kind of fell just a little flat. It wasn't unsatisfying. Jason deserved what he got at the end of the movie. Two points. First of all, I didn't get that at all. In fact, for people that just can't accept the fact that frogs are a threat, what if that room wasn't filling up with frogs? What if he was literally driven crazy by all the croaking? They show all the heads of the animals that we assume he's hunted, which again is something we didn't know. We didn't realize that he was a big game hunter and another assault on nature, zooming in and out of their heads and all of that and the croaking and him having, I assume, a heart attack. I like that sort of, if you really think it could be ambiguity. And then there was the scene right before that when Sam Elliott and Joan Van Ark and the kids are picked up by someone on the road. They chit chat. There's a hint. It's not played up very well, but there's a hint dropped maybe twice. Maybe it is in the car and then a time before that. Well, what if this is happening everywhere? The kid turns around and he shows him this huge frog that he found. And then the camera kind of maybe zooms in and then it kind of freezes. Yeah. What if the death of Ray Milan and that scene were flipped? What if the very ending was that zoom in on the big frog and it ended? The way it is now, there's that scene and then we see Ray Milan's death. Do you think that would have been more impactful? I think it would have been better. And then maybe they wouldn't have had to make his death such a big deal and you wouldn't have noticed. Technically, we do have one more shot at the end of the credits. Stick through to the end, everybody. Not that it's long credits for a No, second, no. But... And I don't think we're spoiling anything by saying that we see an animated frog who has a hand sticking out of its mouth and ends up slurping up the hand. And does he rivet? Does he burp? I can't remember. Yeah. It's clearly a little comical scene, but it kind of ties back to the poster. I think one of my favorite taglines in some of the poster work is a tidal wave of slithering, slimy horror, devouring, destroying all in its path. Taking it maybe to an extreme, but that's what taglines are supposed to do. I don't know if you've got anything else or if we're ready for the cast, but I do have two quick points I want to make. Talking about the mishmash of genres in a way, and you may have to force it a little bit, but this is also sort of like an old dark house movie. Big mansion, family, some of them there waiting for him to die to see what they're going to inherit from the fortune. Very gothic phones that don't work. And also, if you really want to stretch, in a way, it's a precursor to the slasher film 
And particularly, you mentioned earlier, Happy Birthday to Me. If you think about a movie that is solely advertised based on the way that people die, that was their tagline, however many of the most horrific murders you've ever seen. Yeah. Well, when you get a, something like this where every character has died in a different way, that sort of is a, a hint, maybe, of things that will develop and come later. Yeah, that's true. Frogs is just full of... It was revolutionary. It was... <laughs> predictive of the future it's just a monumental feat in filmmaking as goofy as it may seem on the surface there is actually a lot more to frogs bubbling under i'll defend it to the day i die i think it's amazing i enjoyed the heck out of it i i did maybe not quite to the level as you i wouldn't rank it in my top 20 films of all time but i definitely enjoyed it and i could see myself watching it again hey it's on a blu-ray double feature with food of the gods Shout Factory put it out. A little pricey right now. I'm seeing it's going for $50. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if it went out of print, and maybe that's why the price jacked up. You can rent it on Amazon Prime for $3.99. If they would put out another version with a commentary track, I would probably get it. I was really disappointed that this didn't have one. Day of the Animals, I did listen to the commentary track since I had watched it so recently. I would have done that in the case of Frogs. The only bonus feature they had was an interview with Joan Van Ark called Buried in Frogs. And when you go through the cast, if you don't mind, it's really just her reminiscing about the different actors she worked with. So maybe when you tell us about the actor and what they were in, I'll then kind of add what Joan Van Ark had to say about that person. Before I dive into the cast, just a couple of little tidbits of trivia along the way. 500 frogs and 100 toads were purchased for the film, and most of them ended up escaping during the course of production. Very similar to... What happened with Kingdom of the Spiders, they buy all these animals and then they don't keep track of them. And then people who live in the area were probably plagued with frogs for a period of time. The mansion is actually the Wesley House. It's from the Eden Gardens State Park in Santa Rosa Beach, Florida. When this movie was released, it was originally on a double bill with another movie we just recently talked about, Godzilla vs. Hedera. Interesting double feature. Yeah. The music in the film was by Les Baxter, mm. who I normally love. I will say, I don't think this is one of his more memorable scores. I don't think he really had much to do. There's a lot other better Les, Les Baxter soundtracks out there. Yeah, the nature is provides the soundtrack. Really, it does. I'll kind of go backwards because we'll end up with Joan Van Ark. The film was written by Robert Hutchison. The screenplay was by Robert Hutchinson and Robert Blees. Robert Hutchinson didn't do a lot. He did four credits. This was his most memorable. Robert Blees did do a lot of other things. Black Scorpion, From the Earth to the Moon, Dr. Fives Rises Again, Who Slew Auntie Rue, and a movie I know you just recently covered not too long ago, The Curse of the Black Widow. George McCowan directed. He did lots of TV work. The Invaders, The Star Lost SWAT, Starsky and Hutch, Charlie's Angel, Fantasy Island, more so known for his TV work than his theatrical. Now, Joan had something to say about him. Okay. She said he was a very gentle, easy, comfortable man. She said he was like a horse on the beach. And I would equate that to the golden retriever at the airport. You're nervous. You're under pressure. You pet this animal and it just naturally calms you down. So she said that was what... George was like. The character of Maybell had several key scenes played by actress May Mercer. She was in a couple of big things. She was in Dirty Harry and The Beguiled, so a couple of Clint Eastwood films, but she only had 20 credits overall, so not a lot of work for her. 
There was a David Gilliam played the character of Michael Martindale. And I don't, I didn't really find anything notable from him. We talked about Lynn Borden as Jenny Crockett. I have a note on her. Joan Van Art pointed this out, that they look very similar. And in fact, that's true. There were some longer shots with the long blonde hair, and I thought it was Joan Van Art. The character of Bella Carrington was played by actress Judy Pace. A couple of big things she did. She was in Brian's Song and Cotton Comes to Harlem. I want to know more about her. There is something, I've picked it up, but I haven't really gone back to dig deep. Beautiful, beautiful woman. And that played some part in her career. She was either commonly acknowledged for her beauty or that got her her work. I'm not sure what. Joan Van Art called her beautiful and flawless, her silky smooth skin. Clint Crockett was played by Adam Rourke. He was in Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. He was in an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man. And here's my Star Trek connection on this film. He played the character Chief Petty Officer Garrison in the original first Star Trek pilot episode, The Cage. He was the guy that almost looked like he was working the communications console, but I guess he wasn't really considered communications. He was Chief Petty Officer. Anything on Adam Rourke? Just she had memories of the boat scene at the beginning that you described, and that was pretty legitimate, I guess, him driving crazy and her being... Kind of tossed about on the boat. Joan Van Ark played Karen Crockett, as we said, Val Ewing and on Dallas and Not Slanting, probably her most famous role. She was also in Night Gallery. She was in The Bionic Boy, The Last Dinosaur from the late 1970s. That's a fun flick. And she was also the voice of Spider Woman on the Spider Woman animated 1979 TV series, which I don't think I've ever seen an episode of Spider Woman. Hmm. Sam Elliott as Pickett Smith. Everybody knows Sam Elliott. He's had kind of almost multiple phases of his career. Early on, he did lots of TV work. He was known for being on Mission Impossible. Real big around this time, he was right on the verge of doing Lifeguard, which played on his big hunky manhood that he had. And then as we look on into the 80s, of course, he did some big movies Tombstone, which is a classic. Roadhouse, which is a classic. He was also in Shakedown. And even more recently, he did The Man Who Killed Hitler and then Bigfoot. He was also in the uh, TV series 1883. Sam Elliott's got a voice. He's got a look. Now, of course, he's known for that bushy mustache and, and just Mr. Man. At this point, he didn't have the mustache. It has a voice to go along with it. My mom loves Sam Elliott. I love him in, in pretty much anything I've seen him do. Joan Van Ark says, in her heart of hearts, that's why she took this movie, is that she could work with Sam Elliott. She called him a gentleman, but he didn't push it. It was just effortless for him. She called him elegant, graceful, a real class act. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't bring this up. <laughs> and I have bit my tongue several times because you have talked about what a wonderful package La Rorona was. We have talked about snakes. I have to say, in a tight pair of jeans lit a certain way, there's not much left to the imagination about Sam Elliott. He is anatomically correct, I guess you could say, and then some. Frogs may not have necessarily put him on the map. Lifeguard is what everybody was swooning over for him in Lifeguard because he wore very little clothing. I think that's where my mom first saw him. Ray Milan plays Jason Crockett. 
he's got cred in the genre because he was in the uninvited which i think is one of the best ghost stories ever done not necessarily the genre but he's well known for the lost weekend of course dial m for murder hitchcock classic he was in the premature burial which was the non-vincent price Roger Corman Poe film that Price probably should have been in, and we would probably talk about it a lot more. Panic in the Year Zero, X, The Man with X-Ray Eyes. He was also in Night Gallery, a thing with two heads, which we've talked about here on the show before. The Uncanny, which I just saw. For sci-fi fans, he played the character of Sire Yuri, kind of an asshole character in the pilot episode of Battlestar Galactica. He was the one keeping all the food for all the rich people while the rest of the fleet was starving. What did Joan Van Ark think of Ray Milland? Actually didn't say a lot about him other than her father, she said, was insane for Ray Milland. So really, really big fan. She kind of contradicts herself and said that's the reason she took the movie was to work with him. That's all she really said about him. But the other story that she told about Frogs was that the Knott's Landing cast got together for an autograph show and a fan brought her a Frogs one sheet. He didn't want her to sign it. He gave it to her as a gift to this day is hanging or to the day that she did the interview is hanging up in her office. And she said she's not embarrassed about making frogs. She is very grateful for the experience. Nothing to be ashamed of. No. Anything else? That's it. We've already talked about its availability and I couldn't find it in any other streaming services out there. So I was glad that it had popped up on Svengoolie because I was able to watch it that way. Definitely a fun film. I would definitely watch it again. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Before we take a break, we have received some contributions from our friend Steve Turek. He sent us two audio files, one for Frogs and one for Day of the Animals. I'm going to assume that this is not feedback for previous episodes, so we did not include it in Old Business. However, we are going to end each of these segments with his comments, and then maybe, maybe not, come back and make comments on those. So let's listen to Steve. Then we'll take our break and come back and talk about Day of the Animals. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Rich. This is Steve from the Diecast Movie Podcast. Leaving you guys some feedback about some of the movies you're going to be discussing this episode. I believe from last episode, you're going to be discussing Nature Gone Amok with Frogs and the Day of the Animals. So I'm going to watch both these movies. I have never seen frogs before, at least to my knowledge. And I think it's been at least 35 or 40 years since I last saw the day of the animals, both of them pretty much going to be fresh viewings for me. Cause I really don't remember anything from days of the animals or very little, I should say. And I don't remember anything from frogs. That's why I don't think I've ever seen it. Let me start off with frogs. I'm going to watch that and I'll be right back for everybody listening. Of course, it's going to be a real quick second. But for me, it would be like an hour and a half or two hours. Croak. 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 Just got done watching Frogs. What can you say? Sam Elliott. I didn't know he was going to be in it. And as soon as I saw him paddling the canoe, I'm like, wait a minute. That is the Sam Elliott. I think it's Sam Elliott because he doesn't have the mustache. And he's very, very young. And as soon as I heard his voice, I knew for sure it was Sam Elliott. But of course, when I saw the credits rolling and Sam Elliott was in the movie, I was able to puzzle it all out and put it together. He is the best thing of Frog. <laughs> Excellent in everything. So I love Sam Elliott in it. Ray Milland also does a good job. 
being the um, patriarch of the family. Let's talk about the movie itself. Frogs. I'm thinking it's a killer frog movie. And obviously it is not a killer frog movie. It's just about everything else kills everybody. Um, you have venomous snakes that are killing people though way too fast than what happened in the United States. But Hey, you know, maybe cause nature's a muck, their venom is more potent than it normally would be. You got spiders, you have lizards that know how to use the poison to their advantage and have one person die. Boy, it, they have been killing the critters themselves, which I thought was, to me, the best death. Because if you're having um, somebody that's kill people, killing people or a group of people killing people with pesticides and sprays, what better way to take somebody out by then using pesticides and sprays? Um, you got gators or crocodiles. I'm not sure which one it is. You have some pretty cool deaths. You got some lame ones, of course. There's there's never always going to be a good one. I think the lamest one is Clint, the guy that swam out to the boat, and he gets attacked from underwater. You never really see what happens to him. You know, what was it a snake? Was it a gator? Was it who knows what? He gets bit twice, and then he goes out. The second time, he goes under forever. That, to me, was a poor death. Things I liked about the movie, uh, let's see. I also enjoyed the parts where they're discovering that the environment is attacking them, which is more from Pickett Smith's character. Sam Elliott starts to figure it out, you know, puzzled out together. But I like it when Charles, the butler, and the people go back off the island to the shore. And when they're walking around and they see how things have been left unattended, like the grill still grilling the burgers. Oh no, it's not just the Island. It's elsewhere. And what is going on? And you see the birds now getting involved in the air. They don't, we don't see them attacking, but you see them and they start to worry about what else might be going after them. It implies that they were killed because you see their luggage later on, but were they really killed or did they just drop the luggage? It's hard to say. We we never see the body, so you can go at it either way. What did they survive or did not survive? I hope they did survive because they were smart. They were just trying to get off the island. They weren't listening to Raymond Lon's line like, oh, let's just stay here because we got to stay here because it's my birthday and we'll be here forever. I mean, yeah, totally um, losing um, touch with reality. Um, otherwise... Everybody else gets off the island that's going to get off. It was pretty good. I enjoyed it. I mean, you could pretty much put out a bingo card at the beginning of these move these types of movies. If you know all the put all the characters' names on them, randomize it, and then you can see who's going to live and die, whether or not who gets bingo first. So it's almost like you can come up with a nature going to muck bingo cards, <laughs> have the names of them on there. Who's going to live? Who's going to die? Will you get bingo? And is it going to be the type of movie that that 70s are known for where everybody dies and you get the get the full bingo card effect? It's a nice movie. I enjoyed it. Would I rewatch it again? Eh, I might in 20 years from now. It's not one of those movies I think I would watch on any time of a regular basis. But it was an enjoyable watch. And the only death I could kind of attribute anything to the frogs might be... Ray Milan's character's death at the end, 
it seems like he dies from a heart attack or something because the frogs just scare him. Maybe the frogs killed somebody. Or you could say that the frogs are the generals and masterminding all the deaths of all the characters by getting the other creatures to do it for them. Thank you, Mr. Turek. That was really cool. I really love how you're playing along at home, which is like we always try to let everyone know what we're doing ahead of time so that we have people play along and do these kind of cool voicemails to let us know what they think. So thank you for doing that. Jeff, I know you had some comments specifically about some of the things that Steve said, so I'll pass it off to you. One point I intended to make, and it was in my notes, was are the frogs controlling the other animals? And there is, I don't think it's pervasive, but at one point that thought did cross my mind. And in fact, at one point, I wondered if there was one frog that was like the leader of all the animals, because there's a very unique frog that has like eyebrows. And I don't know if they're veins or bumps or what, but I made my note. I thought, hey, I've never noticed this before. Is this frog controlling it? Then you see other frogs in the same scene with that type of eyebrow. So I don't think that's the case, but very reasonable that maybe the frogs are controlling the other animals. I mean, maybe their croaking is driving the animals crazy as well as. (laughs) And then the other thing is, you know, I appreciate the fact that you don't think you'll watch it for 20 years, but I also have hope that you will listen to Richard and my comments and realize that you need to give it a revisit sooner than that and realize all of this has to offer. It's definitely worth maybe a revisit. Check it out sooner than later. Yep. And thank you again for doing that. I look forward to see what you have to say about Day of the Animals. I have a sneaking suspicion where that's going to go and that might be another interesting contrast among us. I will agree with him on one count. You might agree as well when you look at like... Before we move on to Day of the Animals, and I almost forgot, tell us what our other entertainment options were at the time one of these movies was released, and which one did you pick? I chose 1977, mostly because 1972's music choices, I wasn't feeling it. (laughs) But when I looked at what the top 10 songs were on... The week ending Saturday, May 14th, 1977, the uh, release date weekend for Day of the Animals. Uh, I immediately recognized a lot of the tunes and say, you know what, we're going to go with that. So before I dive into the top 10 songs, I will have to give a shout out to the song at number 31, (laughs) dropping 15 spots from number 16. Don't Give Up on Us by David Soul. You got to love David Soul. Okay, top 10. Number 10, I Want to Get Next to You by Rose Royce. Number nine, Got to Give It Up, Part One by Marvin Gaye. Number eight, I'm Your Boogeyman by KC and the Sunshine Band. Number seven, So Into You by the Atlanta Rhythm Section. Number six, Right Time of the Night by Jennifer Warrens. The song at number five, I knew this song. I did not know the band did the song. It's Couldn't Get It Right by the Climax Blues Band. Mm. Number four, Southern Nights by Glenn Mm. Campbell. Number three, probably one of the most recognizable rock songs of all time, Hotel California by the Eagles. Number two, if you're a Stevie Wonder fan, I'm sure you know the song Sir Duke, one of his biggest hits. And number one, Definitely sappy 70s love song. Can I guess it? Go ahead. I guess it every time and it never is it, but could this be You Light Up My Life? No. Oh, dang it. One of these times, yes, we will do that. Number one is 
When I Need You by Leo Sayer. On television, I went with Sunday night, May 15th for a reason. But first, I have to recognize that if we stayed home on Saturday night, we could have seen Earthquake all in one night on NBC. Or we could have watched Wonder Woman on ABC First season of Wonder Woman, so this is World War II Wonder Woman, which I always felt was better than later seasons, and guest star of the week, John Saxon, so a reason to tune in. Sunday night, if you were watching CBS, you were watching 60 Minutes, which has been on Sunday nights forever and still is, Rhoda and Phyllis, two big Mary Tyler Moore spinoffs, and the CBS Sunday night movie of the week was Paper Moon from 1973. Oh, love that movie. If you were watching NBC, also was a staple of early Sunday night viewing for a long time, The Wonderful World of Disney. They had a special theme that week. It was Disney's Greatest Villains. Mm. Then it was the Father Knows Best reunion special. Then the a special called The Billion Dollar Movies, a special hosted by David Niven, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the talkie. Mm. One of those fun TV specials that came and went. ABC would have been, I think, my choice for Sunday night viewing. Starting off with the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew Mysteries. Mm. And then, this is why I did 1977, The Six Million Dollar Man was on Sunday night, 7 o'clock Central Time. The episode of the week was Ghostly Teletype. Not one of the best episodes of the series, but still $6 million man. And then the uh, Sunday night movie, ABC Sunday night movie, was High Plains Drifter from 1973 with Clint Eastwood, which has kind of a supernatural element to that movie. That's what was on TV on Sunday night, May 15th, 1977. If we were at the movies, well, Day of the Animals wasn't the number one movie of the box office. The number one movie was Annie Hall for a second week. But here's, I did not know this actually made the top spot. And that kind of surprised me. Annie Hall had bumped It's Alive out of the top spot. Do you know that It's Alive actually won one weekend at the box office? We were just a matter of a week or two away from a little film called Star Wars. Star Wars would take the top spot on June 1st for what would be eventually a total of 20 weeks at number one. Never going to happen again, folks. Those days long gone, and I think that's kind of sad myself. Another little film that could came along and bumped it in December, but it actually took five weeks of release before it became the number one movie, And that was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it eventually would go on to hold the number one spot for eight weeks. 77 was soon to be dominated by Star Wars. But how cool is it that it went right from Star Wars to Close Encounters of the Third Kind? 1977, that's what was happening in music, in movies, and TV. And now it's time for the movie that we're going to talk about from 1977. A little film called Day of the Animals gonna be a rough trip. Are you big and bad enough to handle it? Although the effect on living organisms is not yet known, 
People are being advised to remain indoors whenever possible, especially those in high altitude areas where the sun's rays would be naturally stronger. Hello, dog. I told you that sun seemed damn peculiar today. God sent the plague down on us because we're just a bunch of no good fellas. Sure are that, Sam. There's something strange in the woods, and I don't know what it is. Well, these city folks sure wouldn't take much of panicking. Damn it, Doc, get out of here! of Northern California, a disparate group of hikers learned that nature has developed a psychosis due to the depletion of the ozone layer. As they climb higher, members of the expedition are attacked one by one by buzzards, bears, snakes, dogs, and each other. Day of the Animals was written by William W. Norton and Eleanor E. Norton, husband and wife. Directed by William Girdler, starring all-star cast of Hollywood Old and New, Christopher George, Leslie Nielsen, Linda Day George, Richard Jekyll, Michael Ansara, Ruth Roman, Andrew Stevens. And that doesn't even name them all. It runs 97 minutes. The production company was Montour Productions, Hollywood West Entertainment, Mid-America Pictures. Released on 51377, as Richard said, from Film Ventures International, FVI. I normally ask you, what did you think? But I want to real quick say that, as I mentioned, I watched the commentary or listened to the commentary as I watched the movie. It is by the author of the book, Lee Gambon. I have a lot of interesting things to share as we go. Awesome. So what did you think of Day of the Animals? Well, this is not a first time viewing for me, although it is the first time in a long time. I saw this back on HBO back in the 1980s. It it entered that cycle. I saw it numerous times on HBO. It was one of those movies that would play late afternoon, and so it would always be on. I honestly don't think I have seen this movie since. So it's probably been 35 plus years since I've seen it. I actually watched it before we chose the theme for this month. I watched A Day of the Animals a few months back on Shudder. I had some nostalgic memories of Day of the Animals and very much the same. I love anything that Sam Elliott's in. I like Christopher George. I do. He's a good actor. I don't know where I first discovered him. Probably on the Rat Patrol. He plays the lead male lead on that, Sergeant Sam Troy. 
And I would have seen that at some point, probably in the late seventies. So probably before day of the animals. And I don't think I saw the rat patrol until we got cable, but once I saw the rat patrol, it was like, whenever it was on, I'd love to watch it. And I've seen him in other movies along the way as well. She's just got a, a, a way about him. And this led me to, of course, watching Grizzly. We'll talk about a little bit later. If I was to say like, which one I enjoyed more, I'll say Day of the Animals, simply because I had more nostalgic. I don't think the message necessarily is quite as good as what you might get with Frogs. But because it's got an all-star cast, and and some of the cast is, you know, you got you, they're not all bad. You know what I'm saying, I guess maybe that's where I gravitate a little more towards Day of the Animals because you know so many of the people in Frogs are like, ah, yeah, good, you know, get rid of them. On this one, there's really only one bad bad character and a couple of others that are you know a little questionable. The bad character being the character Paul Jensen, played by Leslie Nielsen, who had not yet done his turn to be the funny, goofy, naked gun character. He's still kind of the creep show bad guy in this one. And to a point where he goes full-blown nuts to where you're cheering his death when it happens. Because he was going down a really dark path right before he meets his end. I find myself cheering for more of the group than I did in Frogs. There was a couple of characters like Shirley Goodwin, played by Ruth Roman. I wasn't necessarily cheering against her, but I kind of wanted to smack her a little bit. Some of the things that she's doing, I was like, woman. There's a scene where she's kind of getting on to her son, Johnny, and then Michael Ansara, who I love Michael Ansara. He has a way of kind of commanding that moment. And he plays the character of Daniel Santee who is kind of the Native American. He understands before anybody else that something is a little off. And he has a moment where he kind of talks to Shirley and is, is trying to get her to understand. He has some moments where he's talking to Johnny and it's like, well, your mom's not all bad. She just doesn't quite understand. Well, we are polar opposites on this. Although I do have nostalgia. My nostalgia, though, is I did see it originally in theaters. Not the chief. It was at the Esquire, the bigger theater downtown. Boring. I don't know if it was my age, but I did not like it. I can pinpoint exactly the three times I have seen this. That was then... My second time was only recently, like you, a couple months ago, I wrote about it on my blog, and then again, last night or night before, for this. Now, I will so say- When you saw this in the theater, you were you would have been 14, right? Yes. You would have been 14. So I would have seen this probably, I would have been 13. So we were the same age when we first discovered this movie. So that's interesting because I remember never being bored with it. But I want to say it has changed drastically. I do now like this movie. I don't find it boring, but it's got many, many more rewatches to get anywhere near Frog. Ruth Roman, I want to comment real quick about her. And you did kind of mention it, but really her her character has an interesting arc. She is the one that starts out annoying and then gets kind of reflective and then you kind of feel for her at the end so that is an interesting arc that her character makes i think this movie is more about the characters than it really is the animals there's not as many deaths no no actually no i'm looking at the tally of people killed there are seven 
Okay, but there's actually eight clearly defined deaths in frogs with a possible another three. The number of deaths in this movie is clearly defined at eight. So the clearly defined deaths are actually the same. Well, I look forward to going through there because I didn't count that many. And one of them was a human animal. (laughs) I mean, I'm not counting like the guy that falls out of the truck who's already dead. No, I'm not either. But there's a couple of characters that are secondary and they're not part of the group. One of the reasons I think I found it boring and it is still very, very obvious is so many shots of it's like a human scene and then some type of animal, a close up or flying a bird flying or a something. It's like constant scene, animal, scene, animal. And to a certain extent, it's well, I would say it's the same in frogs. It's just I don't know for here. It's more noticeable. And maybe it's because we're out in like the broad daylight in the wide open space. Frogs is a little more claustrophobic. We're in the swamps. But I do now realize as a seasoned movie watcher that that serves two purposes. One, if it shows a single animal is like you're always reminded, Okay, they're watching this. It's a reminder. And then the other is. I guess at the end of Frogs, you see a lot of frogs, but a lot of times in these movies, you really don't. But they show several scenes of a few, and they're always intercut with the action. And I think that is giving the indication that there are many, many, many of these, probably more than they really have. And so I do think that those intercut scenes serve a purpose, but they can become tedious. I get it. Animals are watching. I get it. There's a lot of them. In a certain way, it builds the suspense. Now, I do think here it stands out from Frogs, and I don't know that I would have wanted to be an editor for this movie because there is a lot of of editing of those scenes going back and forth, and I do think that was probably a chore for this movie. The reason behind what was happening to the animals in Frogs is always left a bit more ambiguous, and the scope is certainly more ambiguous. It's a little more clearly defined in Day of the Animals because there's actually news broadcasts. They know that it's the ozone layer and it's then very clearly defined that animals over 5,000 feet have become aggressive. You know that, okay, this isn't happening all over the country, but anything that's over 5,000 feet, the impact is a lot less, but it is more defined. We know that this is happening here What's the vague part is, is it impacting humans or is it just animals? And that's the one thing the character of Paul Jensen, played by Leslie Nielsen, is clearly going mad as the movie progresses. He's a jerk when we meet him, but what's causing, what's fueling this decline? Is it the situation or is it the radiation if no one else is being impacted, it kind of implies more that it's just his persona and the situation is just kind of causing him kind of like the old Robin Williams thing. Cocaine enhances your personality, but what if you're an asshole? <laughs> well, it enhances it. And so maybe his being a jerk is just enhanced by the situation. If you don't agree that there are fewer deaths, do you at least agree that there are fewer animals causing the deaths? Oh, Yeah. Yeah, you've got a bigger variety in frogs. There could be other animals that they could have included, but as the higher you go, there are fewer animals. Dogs probably play a much bigger part 
they're responsible for multiple deaths. The other thing too with dogs, dogs have nothing to do with the environment that they're in, aren't native to high mountains or hiking areas. That could have happened anywhere. To spend so much time of this movie with the dogs doesn't really align with me. From a budgetary standpoint, that's probably why they went with the dogs, because dogs are a lot easier to train. You can only do so much stock footage of other animals. Essentially, we've got Christopher George's character, Steve Buckner. He is a guide, I guess, if you will. He takes groups of people up into the mountains. Your fantasy island group of the week of people that have come on board for this love boat excursion Paul Jensen, played by Leslie Nielsen. He's the villain of the piece, so to speak, as we've been talking about. He's the one that kind of gradually goes a bit bonkers along the way. You've got a variety of other characters. Some play bigger parts than others. You've got a couple of couples, one that are the lovebirds, and then you've got another that's on the other end. And they're kind of on the outs with each other. You've got a football player who has sustained an injury, and so his best days are behind him. He has a knee injury, which comes into play later on in the film. I've been a bit of foreshadowing. You've got the uh, love interest for Steve Buckner. She's a reporter, right? Mm -hmm. Played by his real-life wife, Linda Day George. You've got a professor, and then you've got, as we also mentioned, the uh, Native American character of Daniel Santee, played by Michael Ansara. The Deaths. First person killed is the character of Mandy Young. Mandy and her husband, Frank, are the couple that's kind of on the outs. She's not real happy with him, and he's annoyed with her. She ends up getting injured, and so the decision is made for them to go back down the mountain, go to like where, I guess, the what a ranger station is. At this point, we've seen some animals. They're acting a bit odd. I think we've seen what, a hawk come or something that at the top where they're kind of resting at a mountain place and they've gotten really close. This is where Santee is, he's beginning to sense that something's not right with the animals, that they're restless, they're coming a little closer than they normally would. So Mandy and Frank go down the mountain. Mandy has a rather horrific death on a violence level, I think surpasses anything that we see in Frogs. And she's killed by hawks. Not only is she killed by hawks, but she kind of falls off the side of a mountain. Her husband, Frank, ends up surviving and ends up continuing to go down the mountain. That's a pretty horrific start to the first death. It's also a pretty bad special effect, her fall. Well, yes, I cannot disagree with you there. That's one of those classic falling special effects that continue to plague movies. And honestly, it even plagues Die Hard, right? One of the biggest death scenes in that movie is not the most convincing by today's standards. Anytime you see a fall of a character, it's that really bad green screen effect. The next death is actually a lot kind of happens before the next death in the movie. And if I can just interject, the thing that is different here is that Multiple things may happen to people like they might be attacked, but they might not die. And then they might have a second attack and die. That's different than frogs. That's true. They get to where there should be food and the food is not there. Johnny has a radio. Young boy, Johnny, who is Shirley's son. He's hearing something about 5,000 feet and get below 5,000 feet. And then Shirley knocks his radio into the water and brilliant moment mom. And this is where at this point she's annoying 
and you feel sorry for Johnny and Santee is trying to be kind of this fatherly figure to Johnny and trying to get him to understand. He'll have a conversation with Shirley and your son needs a man in his life. And we kind of get the background that the father who's kind of an absentee father and yeah, you're getting the little bit of character development on some of these characters and about all that you need for a movie like this. We have a break in the group and this is where Jensen has been butting heads with the character of Steve Buckner. Steve Buckner's the leader. Paul Jensen clearly established very early on. He's a jerk. He keeps calling Daniel Santee, Kimosabi. Santee kind of keeps taking it. There comes a point where he's just like, not going to take it anymore. Jensen finally decides he disagrees with Buckner's strategy. We need to go back. We need to go to the ranger station. Buckner says, no, we can't do that. We need to keep forging ahead. Finally, the group split. The other couple, Bob Denning and his girlfriend, his fiance, Beth Hughes, decide to go ahead and go with Jensen, as does Shirley and Johnny. Very early on, Jensen's like, I'm the leader. You're going to do what I'm going to say. And if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you. Bob ends up getting killed by Jensen's walking stick. That's interesting the way you worded that. Ends up getting killed by his walk. Jensen kills him with his walking stick. Okay, well, that's, this is true. This, this is true. And is it, are you counting this as one of the deaths? I am counting this as a death. So this is where... It's not a death by animal. But humans are animals. Yes. And if Jensen is getting affected by... Yes. Then you have to count it as a death. And that's where we don't know if Jensen is or not. That's left ambiguous. He's attracted to Beth. He's wanting Beth. And Bob's had enough of that. Bob is now a stepping stone to get to what Jensen really wants. And he wants Beth. He starts getting physical with Johnny and Shirley and this is where things really kind of start to go down a dark path. He's going to rape Beth. This has now crossed the line. He's not just a jerk. He's an evil character, and he's brutal. And then this is where you cheer, right, for the beast that comes along. And this is where we get to see a grizzly bear comes out of nowhere. Jensen gets a pretty horrific death. Little side note, this is actually the same trained bear that we saw in Grizzly in 1976. He's actually not a grizzly bear. He is a cinnamon bear, which is a subspecies of the American black bear with some camera angles and shots that sometimes work, sometimes don't try to make him seem bigger than he is. Nonetheless, Jensen gets the death that he so rightly deserves. Unfortunately, this leaves Beth in a very fragile state. Shirley is now kind of the pseudo leader of this trio, and that's not boding very well for them. Meanwhile, Back in civilization, things are kind of getting out of hand very quickly because they're starting to realize the animals aren't acting normal at the town level because they're apparently above 5,000 feet. And so now there's this evacuation happening and people need to go. We've had a character of Ranger Tucker, who was Buckner's boss, is now realizing that things are out of control in a whole series of events where... There's the rats are taken over his kitchen. There's another animal too in there, isn't there? There's something else besides the rats. He reaches a point where it's time to go. We got to get out of here. He goes and gets his wife and it's time to get to their car 
they're actually what I count as victims four and five because they end up getting killed by dogs trying to get to their car and trying to evacuate the area. So this would be the first death by dogs, but it won't be the last because at this level, that's about the only animals that would be in the town really that could potentially go out of control. And then we've had the whole story with Frank. He's alive. He's still plugging along. He runs across a young girl. They're camping with their parents. The parents are gone. She's obviously emotionally damaged, state of shock. Frank is trying to get them to safety. And then he ends up getting killed by kind of a combination. He ends up finding a truck that he thinks is going to be their chance to kind of get away. And it ends up that there's snakes. Think he gets bit by a snake. If not, he jumps back. And then the dogs come into play again. And so it's kind of a two-pronged attack from the snakes and the dogs. And the poor little girl is kind of left, I think, in another car, if I remember correctly, where she's kind of hiding out and witnessing the death of Frank. Question. Yes. man that fell out of the truck, was that the sheriff? I don't think so, no. It looks like him. He's the same size. He's got the same hair. Uh, That's a good question. I don't know. Maybe it was. We've had the character Professor McGregor and the football player Roy. And, of course, then you've got Buckner and Terry and Santee. So the five of them are still together as a group. They end up finding some cabins and think that this might be a safe place for them. We've got dogs again. Dogs are on the warpath. McGregor and the the football player, Roy, they get killed by dogs in the cabin. Steve, Terry, and Santee, they're barely getting away. They're getting to a raft. There's dogs and all sorts of chaos going on, and they're trying to get on the raft and get to safety. Meanwhile, you've got Shirley, Johnny, and Beth. They find a helicopter, but dogs are plaguing them as well. As I go through this, you're right. There's a lot of dog action in this one. (laughs) This is the, the day of the dogs. Beth is still very much traumatized, but this is where Shirley kind of redeems herself. She's become the leader of the three of them, and she's not only fighting for her son, she's also fighting for Beth. They end up surviving. The final scene, of course, with Steve, Terry, and Santee, they've continued to go down the river. They kind of passed out eventually, and as they wake up, they're in the town, and there's people on a bridge. The military has come in. I guess it's implied that they've gone into these areas and terminating the animals that are out of control. We see the military get to the little girl who's in the car. She survived. It's not really wrapped up neatly because, I mean, you're still knowing that the animals above 5,000 feet are still being impacted by this hole in the ozone layer. The final scene is a hawk or a bird coming towards the camera to imply that they're still agitated when you get to that certain level. My question would be, of course, if they get agitated and they reach that state, wouldn't they still be agitated then if they come below 5,000 feet? Another question would be is if humans are impacted by it, they could have done a sequel, taken it down a whole different path if they would have explored that a little bit more. That is a terrific scene in the cabin with the dogs. There's a lot of Suspense, jump scares, legitimate scares, dogs crashing through windows, everything. That's a really good scene. Death by dogs. That is a very suspenseful, very well done scene. Probably the best death scene, I guess, if you want to call it that in the movie. Oh, no doubt. This movie brings in another little bit of sub, 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 sub genre with the disaster film. 
because this is more about survival than Frogs was. In Frogs, they didn't really have a chance and they weren't making some effort to survive. Here they are, and they do survive some of the attacks. So the disaster movie with the big cast and the different relationships and getting to know the characters. It's weird. I was going to say it's more character driven. I don't know that that's true because the characters are very clear in Frogs. Maybe there's more character development in Day of the It's a more people centric movie. And maybe that's another reason I found it a little more boring as a kid. I like your point though about the disaster films, because one thing that they kind of have in, in common is that you got the group of people, kind of think like Poseidon Adventure, right? Group of people, the mishmash group that's been put together, and they're on a journey. They're trying to get from point A to point B. Everything between point A and point B is out to kill them. They've got all these obstacles to try to get to where they're going to get away or get to safety. That's a theme that is definitely in natural horror movies the nature run amok films and uh, disaster flicks. Yeah, and even the two groups with two different approaches on what they should do to proceed. You've always got butting of the heads, right? On the commentary, he focuses heavily on two things. One is the training of the animals. He talks about a lot of the animal trainers and what they did, and I don't think a lot of that's really relevant here, maybe one or two points. And then the other is those people relationships. I would have to see this several more times to get the same out of it that he did as far as these subtleties of the characters and their relationships. He even goes so far as to say that there is a one-to-one relationship between a certain type of animal and the character. I'd have to think about that much harder than I want to think about it at the moment. This is about 10 minutes too long. Seriously, that 90-minute mark really is, to me, the magical mark of what a movie like this should be. Oh, I agree. This movie would certainly benefit by having about 10 minutes shaved off of it. Let's talk about the cast. We do have a lot of characters. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll mention some of the lesser characters, and then we'll go to the main ones. But i got to mention Andrew Stevens, plays the character of Bob Denning. I, I know you recognize him from Dallas, a show you and I both loved back in the day. He played the character of Casey Denault. He was also in The Seduction and The Terror Within. Familiar character. I love The Fury. He's like the poor man's version of Sam Elliott in this movie. He gets to be fishing shirtless. Handsome young man. The football player, Roy Moore, played by actor Paul Mantee. Probably the most memorable thing genre fans will recognize him from is Robinson Crusoe on Mars. He also did The Manitou, which actually will come up a couple of different times here. Lots of TV work, also in Six Million Dollar Man, along with a lot of other people from this time period. Ruth Roman played Shirley Goodwin. She was in Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. She was in lots of TV work, The Outer Limits, Night Gallery, The Sixth Cent. She was also on Not Slanding for a period of time. Michael Ansara played Daniel Santee. Of course, he was also in The Manitou. Star Trek reference, he played the Klingon Kang in the classic Star Trek episode, Day of the Dove. He played that character again on episodes of Deep Space Nine and Voyager. He was also married at one point to Barbara Eden from I Dream a Genie, which he also appeared in. In the very first color episode, he played the blue gin and he had painted all blue. So it was really vibrant when that show went to color. He was also in Lost in Space Buck Rogers, and he was the voice of Mr. Freeze on Batman the Animated Series. Hmm. Richard Jekyll, I think is how it's pronounced, played Professor McGregor. 
I would call him a character actor. He was in a wide variety of things. Starman, The Dirty Dozen, The Green Slime, Latitude Zero, Grizzly, Mako, The Jaws of Death, and Mr. No Legs. A variety of films for him. Linda Day George, playing the character of Terry Marsh, wife of Christopher George. She was also on Mission Impossible, played the character of Lisa Casey. She appeared in both the original series and the 80s series. She was in The Invaders. She was in Mortuary with her husband. Lots of TV work, and she was also in the movie Ants. Leslie Nielsen as Paul Jensen. He was a villainous character or the tough guy character for much of his career, including a film called Dark Intruder from the 60s. He was in Night Gallery, played the villainous character in Creepshow, but he also took the comedic turn when he did Airplane and then brought that into The Naked Gun and then spent the latter part of his career, the twilight of his career, playing kind of goofy characters. And Christopher George as Steve Buckner played Sergeant Sam Troy in the Rat Patrol. He was Ben Richards in the series called The Immortal. He was also in Grizzly. He was in City of the Living Dead, a.k.a. The Gates of Hell. He was in Mortuary. He also worked with John Wayne in three films, El Dorado, Chisholm, and The Train Robbers. He died at a very young age, died at the age of 52 of a heart attack in 1983. Mentioned William Girdler as the director. Not a lot of credits, but he had nine films, a few other films, including Three on a Meat Hook, Grizzly, and The Manitou. Edward Montaro, who did the story, only wrote three films, but he produced 36 films, including Grizzly, Beyond the Door, and Mortuary. William and Eleanor Norton. Eleanor only did two films, the other being Dirty Tricks in 81. William had a few more films to his credit, including Dirty Tricks. He also did Gator, I Dismember Mama, and Big Bad Mama. I love the tagline, for centuries they were hunted for bounty, fun, and food. Now it's their turn. I have some additional information on the producers and writers. Fascinating stories. Well, judge for yourself. Montero. He was controversial in in some of the films that he produced or brought to the United States. He brought Beyond the Door to the United States from Italy. And that was controversial because it was an exorcist ripoff or so Warner Brothers accused and sued them. He won. I don't know if this is a precedent-setting ruling or anything, but they decided that a component of a movie doesn't fall under the copyright of the entire movie or something like that. So therefore, a head spinning in Beyond the Door was not in and of itself a reason that they could prevent him from putting out. Okay, so then he financed Grizzly, but he kept all the profits for himself. That was eventually resolved. I don't know that it went to court. Then he produced Day of the Animals. He did other movies, and interesting, you mentioned Mortuary, I think, uh, with Christopher George and Linda, but he he made some other 70s, getting to the 80s movies, The Dark, Incubus, Mortuary. Then in 1980, he brought Great White to the United States. This was a more blatant ripoff of Jaws, and he lost that court case from Universal. 1985, he filed Chapter 11. He disappeared, and to the date of the recording of the commentary, at least, his whereabouts were unknown. 
<laughs> well, that's interesting. The writers were also controversial. The man, the husband, I don't know if he was from Ireland or what, but he was a supporter of the Irish Liberation Army. I'm, I'm not sure, something. But he bought firearms for them. And he was discovered for having a secret container in his van that held weapons. And he was arrested in the mid-1980s. Went to jail, got out, moved. He's been to, I don't remember what third world countries where he lived. I believe he's returned to America. I don't have as many details about his wife. I don't know if they're still together. Quite a controversial behind-the-scenes crew. I would say crazy. That's all I got on Day of the Animals. It's growing on me. I do enjoy it. I will probably watch it again, but it just will probably never reach the level of frogs. The nostalgia still pulls me towards this one, but acknowledge that it's got flaws. You know, in my mind, both movies have flaws. Neither are perfect. Both, I think, are enjoyable to watch. With Day of the Animals... You've got it on Blu-ray from Severin for $25. Eh, a little pricey, but it is what it is. A good package, though. A lot of bonus features. That's what I watched it on. And with the commentary, I think worth it. Severin always does well with their releases. Kind of one of their cheaper ones. <laughs> you can also get this. I believe it's still on Shutter. So if you have Shutter, seek it out. It's also free with ads on Amazon Prime. Freebie. Both films are readily available. Seek them out if you are so inclined. To top it off, a great double feature. We have some comments from Mr. Turek to listen to before we officially wrap up our Day of the Animals conversation. Okay, Rich, Jeff, I'm back. Day of the Animals has been watched. And yes, I have seen it before. And yes, it had to have been about 40 years ago. It's been a long time. <laughs> long, long time ago. This is another one where you could fill out your bingo card with all the different names. Who's going to make it? Who's going to die? And what kind of deaths are we going to get that are going to be interesting? Ooh, the suspense. It's tingling all over. Now, being a big fan of the movie Grizzly, already I'm happy with this movie with Christopher George and Richard Jackal in it. I'm like, okay, we got two of the main characters from Grizzly in it. This is going to be a good movie. I'm looking forward to it. Let's see what happens. And, of course, you have Leslie Nielsen in it, Linda Day, George, Michael Ensarat, and a whole bunch of other people, including <laughs> Susan Becklini, who escaped death in this movie but did not escape death in another Nature Gonna Muck movie, which I'm sure you guys have already talked about or will talk about, depending on when you play this in your episode. I enjoyed the movie. I enjoyed it actually more than Frogs. I think being that it's not in the swamp, it's more in the um, outback, the wilderness, being a wilderness first aid responder. I'm more used to being in those type of environments where you're hiking and camping. Both movies have some similarities and they played in the normal trope. If you're a child, you're not going to die. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So the child characters make it to the end. Leslie Nielsen's character is the arrogant a-hole of a person. So you can't wait for him to die. And of course he ends up killing another character, but I mean, really a bear comes into the thing standing up and his big thing to do is to go attack the bear or maybe 
Leslie Nielsen's character had such a total breakdown at this, and he went so back to nature that he thought, oh, the bear's coming here. I'm going to go give it a hug. And they both hug it out. Who knows what's going through that crazy guy's head. Basically, he just went nuts. And Paul Jansen deserved to have whatever happened to him between him and the bear. We have bird attacks. Birds basically doing like what the frogs were doing in the earlier movie, doing all the spying, the scouting, possibly the planning. I don't really know. They seem to have some kind of psychic connection between themselves, the other animals that is, setting everything up. Except this time the birds do physical attack and actually do have a definitive kill. So unlike frogs where we might have had a death, this one we have a definitive fatality. Uh, we have snakes involved. The movie is doing really well. And then all of a sudden, the last like 10, 15 minutes, the movie literally goes to the dogs. I'm not saying in a bad way, but here you had a variety of animals, wolves, bobcats, or cougars. It's hard to, I'm not an animal expert, so it's hard to tell which one they were trying to portray there. You had the bears, you had the birds, you had snakes, you had a single dog that was always shown around, a stray dog that in combination with the snakes did the one kill, which I thought was really good. So I have to say, for a guy who's going back to his car, oh, I just got to get to my blue car, I know, and I'll be able to get us to safety. And they know they're going camping for like two weeks. Why in the world? Would you have the windows down knowing you're not going to be back to your car for two weeks? I can understand they're saying it's a small town. Oh, you know, you're going into the store or the restaurant or whatever. You're going to be right out two weeks though. You know, it's going to be a possibility of rain or other stuff, or who knows things might get into your car like the snakes. So I find that really, really stupid that the windows were down they did that so the snakes would be in there, I know, but they could have had the snakes under the car and the snake got him in the ankle, which caused him to turn his attention away from the dog and the dog does its final jump on him and the snakes are biting him. We don't really see how he gets killed, but it's pretty much a combination of the snakes and the dog. I think that would have been better than having the window down and just to have that scene with 20 or some odd snake in the vehicle waiting for him. And of course, he doesn't look and reaches his hand and gets bit. It's hard to tell. What was going on there? It was a good death in one way, but it was a poorly written death in another way. But when I mean go to the dogs, it was after that when all you see is packs of dogs now doing the killing or attempted killing with the two different groups. And how in the world there got to be so many German shepherds in one area, I'll never know. I mean, it was like, holy mackerel, did they just go to animal trainer and say, how many dogs you have? Well, I got these 20 German shepherds. Okay. 20 German shepherds. I don't know how many it was. It was at least double digits crying out loud. That's a lot of German shepherds. <laughs> Those two parts were a little bit unbelievable where he had so many dogs living in the wilderness. But otherwise I enjoyed the movie. This is one of the two. I would, I wouldn't mind watching again. I'll probably end up getting it on a Blu-ray or whatever down the road to add to my Grizzly Blu-ray and have some fun with it. So I, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was well done for what it is. You know, you expect to see some deaths, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's a disaster movie called by, caused by nature. And basically because man is 
causing either pollution or destroying different parts of the environment. So both of them have that together. They try to suppose that these things could happen to all of us. Who knows? I would have thought something that they could have done in the movie since they're showing some of the town so much and showing the one stray dog. It would have been cool to see if the town had pets and the pets starting to slowly change or get out of character and start to get more attacking at their masters and that kind of stuff. At least of one family, it would have been nice to have that contrast since they were trying to show both areas. But hey, you know, that sets it up for a future thing. If they ever want to do a remake or make it into a mini series, as they always seem to be doing nowadays on like Amazon Prime and Netflix. Instead of dating animals, it could be weak of the animals. Who knows? You know, it'd be kind of cool if they do it well. Steve, thank you again. I want you to know I appreciate it. However, I hate to tell someone they're wrong, but <laughs> this is about as close as anyone comes to it. And that you you had me at, you liked this better than frogs. I know that's how Rich feels as well, but uh, I got nothing else to say, Rich. <laughs> I just, well, first of all, thank you, Steve, again, for your comments. And yeah, I think you and I are probably more in sync with these movies than Jeff, but I did enjoy Day of the Animals. In fact, I would like to have Day of the Animals on Blu-ray. So that's going to have to be added to my list. So a couple of things real quick I wanted to comment on, and I'm glad you mentioned Mandy Young, played by actress Susan Backlany. I had this in my notes and forgot to mention it. Yes, she is the first victim in Jaws. She is the woman who gets devoured by Jaws and the very first one in Jaws. Her claim to fame, if you will. I love your comment. I should have mentioned this last time. Your comment about the bingo card, I thought was a brilliant idea for these movies. Yes, some people do drinking games with movies that you could somehow maybe turn this into some type of drinking game too as well. But I love the bingo card idea. That was great. Appreciate you playing along and watching these movies with us. Hopefully you can do that again in the future. Thank you very much for participating in our Nature Run Amok episode. For those of you that have forgotten or don't know, Steve has the Diecast movie podcast, which is wonderful, does some terrific interviews. And we're going to play right now an ad from a talk about a sub something of something else. Part of that is the Hammerama podcast, which is a great, entertaining podcast about Hammer Films that he does with our other friend, Alistair. I'm Al from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen from Maryland, USA. We are Hammerama. Welcome to our new podcast, Enter Freely and of your own will. Part of the multi-award-nominated Diecast Movie Podcast, Hammerama is a wide look at the world of Hammer Horror from either side of the globe. Each month, we will throw a die to decide which category from the film Vault of Hammer we are going to discuss. The Dracula, Frankenstein, or Mummy Cycles, science fiction, prehistory, or the experimental 1970s. We will cast our international eyes across, then and now, reviews of the movie. Its place in the Hammerverse. Our encounters with the stars. A film poster critique. And unusual associated merchandise. So join us for our bite-sized discussion of Hammer's gory glories, stitched together from both ends of the earth. Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. 
we are back with new business, and let's talk about some home video releases. Not a lot of specific titles, however, definitely a lot going on in the month of November, but with Black Friday and all. First of all, if we align these all chronologically, on November 22nd, we have from Kino Lorber, The Blood Beast Terror from 1968. Not one of my favorite movies that Peter Cushing is in. In fact, I have rated it below average in my personal system of ratings. Also, the same day from Kino Lorber, the third season of Night Gallery, which aired from September 24th, 72 to June 10th of 73. Then we hit Black Friday, November 25th, and two of the boutique labels, as they're called, Vinegar Syndrome and Severin, both have Black Friday sales. I want to talk just a minute about each of them. First of all, Vinegar Syndrome. I'm just going to read this quote. As with every sale, the cornerstone will be our dastardly duo of secret surprise titles, which will be revealed the moment the sale goes live. As always, we aim to shock and delight with each surprise release, and you can rest assured that this time will be no different as we present two never-on-blue bloodbaths. First, traversing one of our favorite genres, the 80s slasher, we're proud to be bringing a Southern California deep cut which hasn't seen a video release in over two decades. Complete with a brand new feature length making of documentary. And as the centerpiece of the sale, debuting on both Blu-ray and ultra high definition, we'll be offering a star-studded sleaze fest that has been flooring audiences for decades and is at last getting the release it deserves. Watch for more mouth-watering hints in the coming weeks. I think both Severn and them have announced some of the titles none of which interests me. Of course, I'm intrigued by this little tease and wonder if either of those two might be something that I'm going to want to jump on first thing on Black Friday. Kind of related, I'm going to stick this in. We had talked, I think, two months in a row about a movie called The Horrible Sexy Vampire, and I debated and I ended up not buying it. Well, our podcast friend or family, Rod Barnett, on the Bloody Pit podcast, they did review that film and... I am grateful that I didn't buy it. So over at Severin, same type of deal. The two movies that they have announced that I just want to mention, although I don't think either one really is necessarily appropriate. First is one called I Miss You, Hugs and Kisses from 1978. That's more of a like a mystery thriller. Then this other one is interesting. It's The Five Days from 1973, directed by Dario Argento, but it is not a horror film. It's a comedy drama. Oh, wow. If you're a big Dario fan and you want to see something different, the five days, I guess. I don't want to see something different from him. I just want to see incredibly bloody murders. I don't know if this is correct because I'm showing 1129. Severin has an individual release, Mansion of the Living Dead from 1982. Now, something that is happening right now and goes through the end of the month, the Barnes & Noble Criterion 50% off sale. Can we tempt anyone with that? I need to check and see what some of their recent releases have been. And if the price is right, maybe pick up one or two. I keep an eye on that periodically as well. And and I have to admit that I didn't see anything that stood out other than I think Arsenic and Old Lace was a recent release. In December, the first couple of weeks from Arrow Video, we have Nightmare at Noon from 1988. I'm not really sure what that is. It is a horror film. I, I checked. And then... Not horror at all, but a fantastic movie, Silent Running, from 1972, is coming out on December 13th. 
from Arrow. Then the last thing I want to mention, I got an email from Shout this week that some of the titles they're running low on stock. One of those is The Vampire Lovers. This is not the recent version that was released with the Mark Maddox cover. This is the version I have, which I think was its first release on Blu-ray. Don't know what the differences are, but if you are wanting this, you better do fast because it's going out of print. I will mention one thing, Indicator, which is out of the UK, their Santo box set is coming out on December the 5th. Oh, okay. Enter Santo, the first adventures of the Silver Masked Man. Santo versus the Evil Brain and Santo versus the Infernal Men. The first two official Santo films, both from 1961. I'm pretty sure these are the ones that were actually like filmed in Cuba. December 5th, it's from Powerhouse Films, the Indicator label. You can get those on the region-free ones, Amazon. You can also go to their website in the UK. And it is, although I think they're fine, because I don't know that there's more than 6,000 Santo fans out there, but maybe there is. It is a limited edition of 6,000 copies for the UK and US. I have mine on pre-order. Let's go on to a couple birthdays. November 23rd, 1887, Boris Karloff. November 23rd, 1930, Rico Browning. I included him because I haven't heard lately how he's doing. Have you? I saw something a couple months ago about encouraging more cards. So it sounds like he's still with us. December 2nd, 1924, Jonathan Frid, Barnabas Collins himself. Anniversaries of movies released. It's an all Frankenstein all the time segment. November 21st, 1931, Frankenstein. November 28th, 1973, Frankenstein, The True Story, Part 1, aired for the first time on TV. November 30th, 1974, Flesh for Frankenstein, also known as Andy Warhol's Frankenstein, premiered in West Germany. December 1st, 1944, House of Frankenstein. And then December 15th, 1974, Young Frankenstein. He's our holiday monster. November, December, Thanksgiving, Christmas. Let's put out a Frankenstein movie. Rich, now that we draw to a close, tell us what else you're doing this month for your personal endeavors. How may we spend a little more time with you between now and the next podcast? <laughs> with Nature Run Amok, I had a few things percolating. I had some stuff we've done before, and, and I had seen both Grizzly and Grizzly 2 unfortunately, on the second one. So I thought it'd be fun to do some secondary or supplemental, not secondary, supplemental stuff on the blog. I have a YouTube channel that I've had and, and I've uploaded a video for Night of the Lepus based on an old review. I don't know, honestly, when I'll do another one, but I do have some stuff that has dropped off that I might throw up there from time to time. Now that I've figured out how to do a, a short little video, relatively easy, you can subscribe, but don't go crazy if you don't see anything uploaded for another month or so. It's not going to be a new weekly thing for me, but it's out there and uh, I'll publicize it if I do do any more, which I'm sure I probably will. Night of the Lepus, and then I've got Kingdom of the Spiders. So there's a couple things out there. We did it on the show, also be a movie cast, some old time radio, natural horror classics that I'll be throwing out some links to just kind of tying into the podcast a little bit this month, nothing too crazy. I will probably do the same again next month for next month's theme, because I've got some stuff that I have done previously 
that I will dust off and repurpose to tie into our uh, our theme for the month of December. I look forward to all of that. I like that you're doing the theme month and tying it into your other projects. That's really cool. So anything special going on with you or just business as usual? Yeah, business as usual, but a pickup right after the countdown to Halloween back to the regular. This will maybe be a segue between talking about our blogs and, and the next month on the podcast. I didn't have the foresight to do anything natural horror for this month like you are. However, I am thinking, although we're not doing it for the podcast, last year we did the Christopher Lee Christmas. I think I'm going to do that again on my blog, but we now have the new Euro Horror set. Well, not new, but that is out. Plus, I had written reviews for a couple that we talked about that I never published. But since that's not going to be our podcast, you want to tell everyone what it is going to be. Yes. We are taking a look at the films of Val Luton. Val Luton is not an actor. He's not a director. He's a producer. This is a rare case where we're kind of taking a look at a producer and a selection of films from his career that he entered this phase in the 1940s where he did some very stylish I don't even know if you can really call them horror movies. They're almost more suspense thriller with hints of horror from time to time in them. They're not universal horror. They're not hammer horror. These are very different, almost really like a film noir kind of feel to them. So if you've never done anything with Val Luton, this is your chance to seek out some Val Luton films. We'll be covering two of the films in, in a full-fledged review and then talking about the others. So we'll be covering The Leopard Man from 1943 and The Curse of the Cat People from 1944. Full-blown sequel to the first film. It did bring cast members back, but it definitely was a very different film than the first. He had a very interesting, kind of a sad life. We'll be talking about Val Luton uh, next month. Let's go out on another song that's related. I had trouble finding songs directly related, but this is uh, not animals, plural, it's animal, singular, by Neon Trees from their 2010 album Habits, available on Apple Music, probably recognizable by almost everyone. So let's hope we don't get copyrighted blocked. <laughs> I will call the meeting to a close then. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Richard, for doing it. I enjoyed this episode very much, especially getting to watch Frogs again. Goodbye and good night, everyone. And remember, be kind to nature out there, everyone. And as Woodsy Owl used to say back in the day, give a hoot, don't pollute. Easy on me, I'm afraid you never satisfied. Here we go again. We'll stick like animals, we play pretend. You're just a cannibal, and I'm afraid I won't get out alive. Now